You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I'm Mark Feinstein, executive reporter for MLB.com. Welcome to the Executive Access Podcast. Today, we have a very special edition of the podcast with three executives from across the league. David Chad, Vice President and Assistant General Manager of the Detroit Tigers, Andy McKay, the Director of Player Development for the Seattle Mariners, and Mark Wiley, the Director of Pitching Operations for the Colorado Rockies. David Chad was an All-American college player at Kansas State, going on to a career in college coaching before making a move to the majors as a scout. Following a lengthy stint with the Marlins that included the team's 1997 World Series championship, Chad joined the Red Sox as scouting director, winning another ring in 2004. In 2007, he joined the Tigers as president of scouting, working under Dave Dombrowski in Detroit. Among his selections with Detroit were Andrew Miller, Rick Porcello, and Cameron Maben, contributing to his being named the top scouting director for the first decade of this century. We're here with Tigers Vice President and Assistant General Manager David Chad. David, thanks for taking some time. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So during your three years in Boston, some of the players that you were responsible for drafting, John Lester, Dustin Pedroia, Jonathan Papelbon, did any of those guys in particular surprise you as you watched them blossom into the star players they became? Uh, I think they all did, really. I mean, <laughs> obviously we liked all those picks, and, and I, I will just say behind all those picks were some very, very, very good area scouts that, that led us in the direction of those picks. Um, Joe Mason with Jonathan Papelbon, Gary Rasich with uh, John Lester. Um, but to answer your question, I, I think you're always hoping at the time of the selection that your vision of that player, three, four, five years from now, he's going to be that. But I don't think anybody could sit there and say, hey, Dustin Madroy was going to be the American League MVP either. I mean, we, we, we really, really, really liked Dustin at the time of the evaluation. Um, but he probably overachieved or he did overachieve our expectations as well. You know, it's interesting. Every time I speak to somebody who's worked on the amateur scouting side as a scouting director, the guy who supposedly runs the draft, and you talk to them about guys that they were responsible for drafting, they all you all do the same thing. You mentioned the specific scouts who sure. the area scouts. Yeah. A scouting director gets a lot of credit or blame sure. for the success or failure of a draft. But, I mean, it's such a massive process to prepare for a draft. You're... you're scouting players from all over the country and you could obviously only be in one place at a time yeah it's an incredible process and and I reflect back all the time on picks that obviously we've had success with and, and picks that we haven't and you know what we miss uh, what we do right what we miss and to answer you know to add your point I will have to I just have to tell you that our, our successes that we've had as an organization whether it's been in Florida or Boston or even in Detroit it really goes back to one common denominator, and that's a very, very uh, experienced area scout that was willing to say, hey, this guy is a major league player, and, and this is where we should take him. And, you know, he has to do everything. He has to know the makeup of the player, the signability of the player. He has to vision three, four years down the road the crystal ball with the player. And um, that's where it starts. And then you have your cross-checkers come in, and they have to form an opinion of that player your regional cross-checker, your national cross-checker, and then you have to ultimately, the scouting director has to make a decision at the draft, and he has to say, I'm taking that player. So it, it is a group interaction as far as coming to that decision. 
ultimately the, the, the success and failure rate will always go back to the scouting director because he's the guy in charge. But the underlying factor here, with me anyway, in this organization and every organization I've been with, you, you're, you're really putting a lot of your weight in the experience of your area scouts. And prepping for a draft is a 12-month process, right? I mean, no you finish the draft it. on June 5th, and yeah. on June 6th, you guys are back out there starting on next year. You better believe it, yeah. yeah. And, and as, you're, as you're working into the draft that year, you're, you're noticing underclassmen. Right. You're seeing players for next year's Making draft. Making notes of guys you want to go back to see. And exactly. Kind of so you're already starting the history with that player, but the area scout has already started the history with that player since high school. Right. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's never-ending. You know, college football, you figure there's – 10 games, 12 games, that, you know, yeah. I and mean, obviously they do a lot of work throughout sure. the year, but sure. there's a finite number of games, there's a finite number of schools, and you're not drafting high school players in football, uh, but in baseball, it's just, it seems like such a massive undertaking. Well, we have a unique, you know, in our sport, we have a minor league system, so we have five to six levels where players have to climb to ultimately reach the major leagues. We have a draft that's in season. I think we're the only professional sport, I know we're the only professional sport that has a draft during the season, so there's a lot of things that go into it, a lot of dynamics you have to work through. And uh, but again, it's a testament to the area scout. They go out there and they grind it out 365 days a year. Your third year with the Red Sox, they also win a World Series. People might remember that 2004 team. Sure. Uh, being a part of your first championship team in, in Miami was one thing. Being part of a team that breaks this legendary 86-year curse must have been a little different. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was uh, <laughs> you know to win, to win a World Championship. But the, you know, obviously. It, with any club is special, but with with the Red Sox, it was extremely special. I mean, obviously, hasn't they haven't done it in so many years, and um, I can remember it like it was yesterday. I remember asking my four kids, "Hey, you get your pick. What games you want to go to? One and two, three and four, three, four and five, or six and seven. And I remember my daughter says, "Hey, I want to go to one and two because it's in St. Louis, and I can go shopping and all that stuff." My oldest son, I gave him the first shot at. It. He said, "Dad, I'm going to go back to Boston because when we win it, I want to be there for." Game seven, the parade. Well, obviously, we swept. Right. He, he never got to go to Boston. <laughs> <laughs> did he get to go to the parade at least? No, he did oh, not get man. to go to the parade. So, <laughs> so you know, it, it's uh, the moment at that time was special. Um, you know, I'm obviously uh, happy for all the people in Boston and, and the Red Sox family and, and fans. My brother-in-law is from Brockton, Massachusetts, so it was a special time for him. But just a, just a special feeling. Now the Red Sox win again three years later, and by that time you're working for the Tigers. Mm -hmm. But that 2007 team, those guys we mentioned before, Pedroia, Lesher, Papelbon, they were big parts of that team. Sure. Was there a sense of pride to watch those guys go on to lead Boston to a championship? Absolutely, for sure. You know, it, again, it, it's, it's one thing to draft a player. It's another thing to sign the player. And lastly, to watch the development of the player. So I'll never forget going around seeing our, our affiliates when I was with Boston and I stopped in the Florida State League. And, of course, Papelbon and Lester both were there at the time. And uh, I'll never forget is that that moment when Lester was working on his cutter, just started working on his cutter, and Papelbon was working on his split. And so to, to see that evolve to where they were in 2007 and wh where they came as pitchers, incredible. And and Dustin, Dustin, you know, he just the the heart of the player. You know, he he had tremendous ability. He was a good college player, and um, I was able to see Dustin right before the draft. They were playing Wichita State, and he was facing Mike Felfrey and had a tremendous game. And you know, in my gut, I knew right then, hey, this is our guy if he gets to our pick. 
but for, for Dustin to do what he did in professional baseball and how quick he got to the major leagues and what type of impact he played, he, he had once he did get to the major leagues, incredible, incredible. He just, uh, he's that type of special player with that type of heart. So, yeah, uh, to answer your question, you know, look, watching those guys play in that game, I was, I, I couldn't be more happier for, for them and, and for obviously the people that helped them get there. You worked for Dave Dombrowski for a very long time. Mm-hmm. What did you learn most working underneath Dave? Dave was uh, Dave was great to me. He 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 was very understanding, um, obviously, um, of the draft. He D- Dave was very you know you ran the department. He came to you. There's questions being asked. He asked you, but he allowed you to do your job and to run the department. Um, you know, Dave was a big believer in player development, and scouting, and still is to this day. Uh, he thinks that. In, in order to have a winning organization, you have to draft good players and you have to develop those players for you to have a chance to win at the major league level. And a lot of things he told me, you know, I still go by today. Um, but he, he uh, was a very, very good leader uh, as far as running an organization. You moved to Detroit as the scouting director there. Among the guys you've selected, Andrew Miller, Rick Porcello, Cameron Mabin. Uh, between your Boston, your Miami, your Boston, and your Detroit time, Baseball America named you the top scouting director of the 2000s. What did that mean to you? Oh, I mean, I, I, it was great to read, obviously. Uh, it means a lot. I mean, if somebody, anytime you get honored by any publication, um, I think there would be some people out there that would argue that <laughs> award. But, a, again, it, it's, just, it's just not me. It's a staff. And uh, your successes and your failures have, have everything to do with your staff. Um but to answer your question, it was it was it was a great honor for me. Looking back at your drafts, you have had a tendency for taking hard throwing pitchers early in the draft. Uh, is that a case of that's something you can't teach? You know, you can teach a guy to throw a curveball, you can teach a guy to have plate discipline, maybe. But you know, you either can throw hard or you can't, and certainly maybe you can tweak it a little bit as they get become professionals. But is that a talent that well, just, it's hard I, to teach? I think. The statement's correct. In fact, we have taken a lot of guys that throw hard, but we, we, we try to take guys that know how to pitch too um, because you have to pitch at the major league level. You have to, first and foremost, have to have uh, control of a fastball. You have to be able to throw it over the plate. So we look not only for – velocity is important, but we also look for delivery, arm action. Um, a lot of things go into it. I think the label of just taking guys with big velocity, yes, we have done that, but we also look for guys that are well-rounded as pitchers as well. Um, because, you know, I always looked at it for us to, to take, for these guys to get to the major leagues and to take our club where we want to go. They can't be one-pitch guys. They can't just throw 95 miles an hour. They have to have a second, third pitch if they're starters for us. If they're bullpen, bullpen guys for us, then they have to have two-plus pitches. Um, so I think, uh, again, for me, it's, it's, it's not just velocity. It's well-roundness of a pitcher. Some scouting directors have philosophies. I won't take high school guys high. I won't take college guys high, whatever it may be. Do you think there's a flexibility that needs to be uh, there in this job where you don't rule anything out? Well, I think there has to be. I think you have to also weigh your risk and understand your risk and understand uh, where your successes have been and where your failures have been. Um, And I think a lot of it dictates, too, where you pick in the draft and what's available at that pick. Um, I've always been... Ever since, you know, working for Al, working for Gary Hughes, you know, you take the best player available. If you start selecting on what your needs are at the major league level, you may pass on a better player. 
and we certainly don't want to do that. We want to take the best player available. Um, are there risks in high school right-handed pitchers? You bet there are. Are there risks in high school first basemen? You bet there are. But Al Avila took a good one, Adrian Gonzalez. So you just can't walk past a player because of the position he plays or where he's playing or what, what school he's at or what area of the country he's from. You, in my opinion, you just have to scout everybody. But now influential analytics have become throughout the entire game. To what degree are they being used in terms of scouting at the amateur level? Oh, they're huge. I mean, it's, it's not so much at the major league level in preparation for games. It's My first introduction to analytics was 2003 with Bill James in Boston. Um, you know, I will say coming from, from Florida, we, we drafted a lot of very good athletes. Um, and what, what Bill showed me in Boston was um, there is some merit to performance history, to what guys have done in the summers, what guys have done in the past. Um, there are some odds that sway in your favor, and there are odds that play against you. So you have to look at all that information. Where it's gone since 2003 till now, it's just uh, it's, 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 it's as big as any part of the game of baseball that's being played right now. Information that you have to have, you have to look at, you have to know to help you make decisions in the draft. It's not the end all. This, the information that that scout has in the seats is critical information. He knows the player. He knows the player's makeup. He knows the work of the player. But you add that with the analytics that you're getting from your analytic department, and it can help you make a decision. It can help you make a really good decision. You uh, you drafted Andrew Miller. He's emerged into one of the best relievers in baseball, but he struggled as a starter, which is where he was drafted, what he was drafted to be. You took him ahead of a couple, three guys actually: Clayton Kershaw, Tim Lincecum, Max Scherzer, who have seven combined Cy Young awards. Is there ever a sense after a draft, five, ten years down the road, where you think to yourself, what if I had taken that guy instead? See, I'm trying to work on my sleep at night. Better <laughs> sleep at night. You're bringing up the – no, fair question. At the time, you know, you base your evaluations at the moment of time. And at the time, Andrew Miller had dominated – I I'd see, I saw Andrew Miller throw a no-hitter in high school. He dominated college baseball. You know, you're looking at a 6'6 six, six left-hander with a plus-plus fastball, plus-breaking ball. Um so the decision at the time was he, he was he was our guy. Uh, we did like those guys you mentioned behind us, but for a lot of different reasons that I won't go into, um, you know, helped us make our decision on Andrew Miller. Andrew Miller, though, I will say, was he was our guy at the time. We, we liked him. Um, I thought we could develop him as a starter. Uh, you know, we had the trade, obviously, with Miguel. Um, you mentioned he's one of the most dominant relievers, and he is. I don't know. I don't know if you could argue that if you went back in time, could he could he have been a starter? He maybe, but he's found his niche in his career, and he's one of the best at it. And luckily for you, you get to see him a whole bunch every year, <laughs> yeah, right. pitching in your division. Exactly. Right? So, as you mentioned, Miller was part of the deal that brought Miguel Cabrera to Detroit. As the scouting director in charge of the draft, when you draft a player, I'm assuming you're envisioning him on your field with your team. But is there a satisfaction that goes into knowing that a guy that you drafted was used to help land? Sure. Like a- absolutely. Yeah, I think what you're trying to do is you're trying to draft, develop, and sign players that are going to help your major league club win ball games, and you're also doing the same thing to trade to get players that's going to help your major league team win ball games. And you know, our philosophy here at the time was we were trying to win. We were winning, and we were, you know, four straight division championships. We were going to World Series, and and I understand that. I completely understand that. And so when Dave would call me and say, "Hey," Now, I know this is going to hurt, but we're going to make this deal. I'm, I was always on board because we were making decisions to help our major league team win. Um, uh, you know, philosophically, those things change with teams over time. 
Um, but at that time, at that moment in time, I, I completely understood what we were doing and why we were doing it. When a player leaves a team to go to another team, a lot of times the fans will continue to follow them unless they go to one of their rivals. They'll still kind of sure. you know, follow them and, and cheer for them. Is it the same for an amateur scouting guy? Where, oh, absolutely. Like, do you keep tabs on the players you oh, select I, as they move to other organizations? You better believe Yeah, sure. No, no. You, you keep track. You're watching those minor league box scores every single day. And you're watching, you know, how the player evolves. And, and, it, and you're watching his development process through everything. I mean, you, you want to definitely. Because the only way to improve as an amateur scout is your own self-evaluation. What you saw the player when he was 17, 18 years old or what you saw the player when he was 21 years old and where, what you thought he was going to be and where he ended up, that's your own only you know, uh, report card is that self-evaluation. And we do it over here constantly. We do it every year after the draft. All of our area scouts go through it or cross-checkers go through it because, that, in my opinion, that's the only way you can improve. Is your goal to become a GM someday? How do you? How do you? You know, I look at that. I look at that almost like I look at going from a assistant college coach to area cross checker to our area scout to a cross checker to scouting director to assistant GM. If it if it lines up and it happens, fine. If not, it wasn't meant to be. Andy McKay enjoyed a successful college career before breaking into the game as a scout. Though he would return to his college roots, coaching at Sacramento City College for 14 years. Stops in the Cape Cod League and Alaskan Summer League furthered his coaching resume, though he would come back to the majors in 2013 as the Rockies' peak performance director. In October of 2015, McKay joined the Mariners as their director of player development, where he applies his work on the mental side of the game at all levels of Seattle's system. Here with Seattle Mariners Director of Player Development, Andy McKay. Andy, thanks for taking some time. Appreciate it. Yeah, appreciate you having me on. So after basically two decades coaching in college and summer leagues, 2013, you joined the Rockies. Dan O'Dowd Correct. Uh, hired you. How did that opportunity come about? Yeah, interesting. And anybody who says luck is not a factor uh, um, is ignorant. So uh, <laughs> this will probably go on my tombstone, I think. Chris O'Dowd is playing on our team, uh, was a freshman at Dartmouth College, and so he's going to play on our team. I think at the time I probably understood his dad was the general manager of the Rockies. I'm not sure I actually did. This is the lacrosse team. Yeah. And so Chris is going to be our catcher. And Chris's host family for the loggers were the services. Scott Service is from Lacrosse, Wisconsin. So... You know, I met I met Dan that summer, and then I met Scott's parents. And you know, Dan and I kind of struck up a relationship, and um, obviously his son had had a positive experience playing there for us, and um, so that really began that process that led me to the Rockies. But then the following summer, Scott Service's son played on our team to come live with his grandparents who were host parents for the organization. And I met Scott and, you know, Scott and I were talking about, you know, a potential job with the angels at the time. And Dan and I were having conversations and then that became Jeff Breidich, who was the farm director at the time and now the general manager. And I ended up going with the Rockies because I was so passionate about creating a mental skills program for them. And that's kind of how I made that decision then. So your title with the Rockies was Peak Performance Director. Mental conditioning hasn't been an area that a lot of teams had addressed to that point. Uh, you're seeing it now more where teams have yes. specialists. Why do you think this trend has started to It just makes on? sense, and it's just kind of the natural progression of things of, you know, 
I mean, there was a time when you didn't have trainers with teams either. And then, uh, you know, through the late 80s and early 90s, kind of the strength and conditioning boom hit, and teams started creating departments. And mental skills will get there. It'll become very similar to what a medical staff or strength and conditioning staff is like. Um, And you're kind of seeing that explosion happen right now where there's probably more job openings than there are qualified people uh, to do it and qualified people that want to live that lifestyle. Um, You know, being a minor league mental skills coach is hard. Um, So, but you'll continue to see the evolution of of mental skills in baseball. It seems like not too distant past analytics were the thing that separated some teams from other teams. Correct. Now all 30 teams have analytics departments. Do Do you suspect that mental conditioning right now is an area where teams can gain an edge and eventually will be like an analytics yeah. department where everybody has one. Yeah, the edge, you won't maintain it for long. And just like there's probably 30 different variations of an analytics department. Um, I mean, there'll be, there'll be 30 different variations of, of mental skills as well. But I, I, I would be shocked if not every team is using it somehow in some way right now. And if, it, if those services aren't being provided by the club, then individual agents are and there's plenty of, of independent contractors out there that make themselves accessible to professional athletes. I've seen you quoted several times as saying you think baseball is 100% mental. It is. What separates a mentally strong player from not such a strong player? The ability to focus on the right task at the right moment and you know manage that focus level that you know we can throw around every term we want whether it's competitiveness or mental toughness or whatever that means, but it really comes down to the ability to focus on the right thing at the right time, you know, which for the hitter in the batter's box is, you know, the baseball. And, but we've all, the the biggest analogy I can use is for somebody who's not a a professional athlete is, you know, we've all read a book where we've read the same line three or four times before I realized we're reading the same line over and over again. That's an issue of focus. Well, hitters get in the batter's box all the time and really are not connected to the right thing. They're more connected to the thoughts in their head than they are to tracking the baseball. Pitchers do it, infielders do it. So it's really managing your focus and being focused on the right thing at the right time. I read that you once had a pitcher read a golf book written by a psychologist comparing a pre-putt routine to a pre-pitch routine. Correct. Do you think mental skills are similar across different sports? 100%. So at Sacramento City College, in my classes, I would have the athletes from 18 different sports. And I would not have have thought this beforehand, but through that experience of, of teaching those classes for those years, the athletes are telling you the same things. And the experiences of a quarterback, you know, standing over center and working through his reads is no different than a pitcher working through his process of pitch selection and pitch location, but then ultimately getting to the external target. And that's really the key in every sport, whether it's, it's golf, baseball, uh, football, basketball, it doesn't matter. The right thing to focus on is always something external. If you're focused internally on your thoughts or on your body, you're going to have a problem. But when you think about how we practice, we're always practicing movements and techniques, so it's kind of hard. If you practice like you play, you get out there and you kind of revert to your practice, which is a very internal-oriented, making my body move in a specific form or fashion. But when a basketball player is shooting well, he sees the rim. When a putter is putting well, he has an imaginary spot 
probably a foot outside of the ball that he's trying to get the ball to roll through. Uh, when a quarterback is, is, is throwing well, he's seeing his routes, he's seeing his receivers. When they're not, they're thinking in their own head and they're feeling things. So it's about getting the athlete to be external rather than being internal. You preach to your players that they should be more concerned with the process than the result. Correct. At what point in your life or your time in sports did that become something you firmly started to believe in? Yeah, interesting. Um, my initiation to the process was actually in grad school with a gentleman named Edward Deming, D-E-M-I-N-G, who uh, was an American statistician who was credited with, with basically rebuilding Japan after we destroyed Japan in World War II, and he went over there to help them rebuild their infrastructure and, um, and, and wildly famous in Japan uh, as being the, kind of the, the guru of, of quality control. And I wrote my master's thesis on him, and that's where the idea of process came from. And I began embedding that into the coaching standpoint of, you know, if I'm if I'm worrying about the scoreboard, I'm not I'm focusing on the wrong thing. You have to focus on the process, and you have to trust that the result's going to take care of itself. And it's really hard to do, really hard to do. But luckily. Luckily, there were some much better coaches than Andy McKay who began understanding this. Uh, you know, Nick Saban has made it very popular. Uh, Bill Walsh was very adamant about the process. Um, uh, Dean Smith was a huge proponent of process. So uh, it, it has caught on uh, a little bit more in the mainstream, but it, it, it goes directly opposite to how I would say the majority of people think, which is you have to chase the result because the result is the only thing that matters. Right. But the result can only be created through process. And going back to focusing on the right thing at the right time, results are not controllable. As much as we want to think they are, they're not. And, you know, you, so, so if I'm in the batter's box, for example, if I'm worrying about trying to get a hit, that's a result. I can't control it. But if I'm focused on my process of sticking to my plan, getting ready to be on time with a good pitch, that's process and I can control it. And so a lot of the work is just helping athletes differentiate between process and result. Because that can get a little muddy, too, at times. So, um, yeah, the process is a, is a big word for me. Is it tough to get young players to sort of, I don't know if buy-in is the right word, or maybe yes. just understand it? Because yes. from the time that we're all, you know, in second grade playing Little League or T-ball... You're worried about results winning matter. or losing. Result, like you said, results yeah. are the only thing that ultimately and they do. do matter. And they do matter. And make no mistake about it, results absolutely matter. They get people fired. But I would argue most of those people spent too much time stressing about the result and didn't pay enough attention to the process. And it's no different than what you do. You can be stressed out about trying to write the great article, or you can really dive into the process of creating coherent sentences and meaningful paragraphs and editing it the right way, and then hitting send and letting the result take care of itself. October 2015, Jerry Depoto brings you in as the Mariners Director of Player Development. Um, I know you had, you had talked to Jerry a few years earlier, as you said, when you, the Angels yeah. were talking to you. How did it come about for you to come from the Rockies? Very quickly. It was a, a phone call from Jerry, and within, I think, two days, I was interviewing with him in San Diego, and it was a situation where I was excited, but I was also very happy with what I was doing. So... 
I kind of went in there. I felt like I was playing with house money to some extent, which was, let me tell you what I think. And if it lines up with what you think, maybe we've got something to talk about. And we hit it off pretty quickly, and uh, it's been a wonderful relationship. As farm director, you obviously go visit a lot of all the affiliates. You're known to Donnie Uniform sit in the dugout when Correct. you're there. How important is it for you in this role to get up close and personal with the players in your system? You know, there's a lot of different ways to do the job well. And I think sometimes people look and they, they think I do it in a unique in a unique way, and I don't know that it is unique or not, but I'm a baseball coach. I've always been a baseball coach. Um, I want to be in the dugout. I want to see how players are interacting with each other. I want to see how players are interacting with staff members. Um, and I think I can do a better job of doing what I need to do in the dugout as opposed to sitting in the stands because – I'm not really looking to evaluate players. We have scouts that do evaluations. My job is to help our people and help our process, and I, I think that you can do that much better if you're embedded into those things rather than kind of watching from a distance. Just got a few left here. Uh, your first year at the Mariners, the organization's seven affiliates combined for a 590 winning percentage. It's the best in franchise history. And a lot of people think minor league records are meaningless. They don't. You know, yeah. They don't matter. yeah, I disagree with that. Well, why do you think they're important? Because you're trying to train baseball players to be winning baseball players. And at the end of the day, as we talked about, winning matters. So I would not want to – I think the most sacred thing that you have to teach your players is when you put on a uniform and the first pitch is thrown, okay, that the results matter. And I would never want an athlete feeling like winning or losing, eh, who cares? And so you're trying to train that emotional investment as to what it means to go out and be a great teammate, be part of 25 guys, all pulling on the same end of the rope. And I, I want to produce players who know how to win baseball games. And I think the only way you can do that is to help them learn how to win and turn this thing into a team sport as much as humanly possible. So, uh, and you know, the data is, is somewhat inconclusive on that. Um, you know, but I... That's the way we do it, and that's what we believe in. Mark Wiley was a second-round draft pick of the Twins in 1970, making his big league debut five years later. He would spend time with four other organizations, and although he appeared in only 21 major league games, he has enjoyed a second career as a pitching coach, working for the Orioles, Indians, Royals, Marlins, and Rockies, also serving as Colorado's Senior Director of Player Development in 2000. In 2012, he joined the Rockies as the team's Director of Pitching Operations, a role he still holds today, helping pitchers deal with the perception that Coors Field is an impossible place to succeed. Here with Rockies Director of Pitching Operations, Mark Wiley. Mark, thanks for taking some time. Appreciate it. It's great. Great to see you. You said last year, pitching at Coors Field, it's attitude over altitude. Uh, yeah, that's, that's really Steve Foster's. Uh, Steve Foster came up with that, uh, actually, in... Uh, Steve was my bullpen coach in the Marlins, and, and we were looking for uh, candidates to be our pitching coach. And uh, I was involved in the process, and I recommended him for the interview. And he came in and was one of the pitching coaches that interviewed and uh, just blew us away. And that was one of his comments. And I told him, boy, that's a really good comment. And, uh, and he's done a tremendous job, him and Darren Holmes, for us. How do you get that message across to your pitchers, though, because I, I know you you guys are more concerned with 
the score at the end of the game versus their stats. But pitchers or players by nature will you know, look at their stats and evaluate we themselves start, based we on We start them. at a very young age trying to get them focused on what's important. And we're lucky because we, you know, now we have Albuquerque, which is the same basically as Denver. We have Lancaster, which the wind blows straight out. So our guys go, yeah, and you got Asheville, where you got the shortest porch in the world in right field. We got ballparks that are really tough to pitch in if you look at them as being tough to pitch in, rather than just making pitches. And uh, we know what's important, and we focus on what's important, and we make, make the players understand what's important and what isn't. And uh, our guys have been really good at it. You know, I always kind of compare it to when I was at the Marlins. We, had, we weren't in the new stadium. We were playing day games. It was 1,000 degrees down there. And my starting pitcher, I told guys, I said, do you realize my starting pitchers have never made a comment when warming up like, wow, it's hot today. Not one of them ever for all the time I was there. And I was there twice. And, uh, and I go, that's... That's what we're talking about. That's the mental toughness. It's about getting the job done and making pitches. It's not about worrying about the conditions. And so we've really stressed that hard with uh, that and making excuses. That's not part of our organizational thing. We don't we don't allow that. And that's got to be something you, you have to start hammering into them you right started, away, right? You started, low minors. You started, yeah, yeah, right from the get-go. And we even, you know, even in drafting, when we discuss players and guys tell us how tough this guy is or something, that, that that adds to uh, our thought about maybe drafting the guy. You, you know, his makeup is going to be able to handle what our philosophy is. I saw a quote from you from 1988 where you said, we stress the complete game pitcher. With the emergence of bullpens, the way that they're used now, will we ever see yeah, that I again? Think, I mean, <laughs> obviously you'll see complete games from time to time, but... You know, yeah. the idea of a guy that goes out there and throws yeah, even they, six know, complete games a year seems far-fetched at this point. It's, um, you know, I came from that era. You know, complete games, uh, that's what we all wanted to do. Um, I think that, that, you know, that might even have something to do with the arm issues throughout baseball, is that it's more maximum effort pitches are throwing now. The velocity's gone up two and a half miles an hour over what it was a few years ago for average major league velocity. So that tells me, you know, we're getting stronger and training's better and the diets are better and everything, but guys are putting more effort out pitch to pitch because they're not, no, they know they're not going nine innings. Uh, sometimes some of the pitchers put too much of a priority over stuff as opposed to command. I think in my era, it was all about command. We knew the guys that threw hard, <clears throat> but somebody go, what kind of pitcher is that guy? He's really good. Nobody said how hard did he throw. So now, you know, the draft, the way they do all these things, um, uh, you know, things have changed, you know, and we try to get our players ready for, you know, go as far as you can into the game, but it's all about making one pitch at a time. It's about controlling your emotions. It's about being able to, limit damage when you're in trouble. You know, those kind of things are what get you deep enough into the game to where you turn it over to these guys that are paid a lot of money in many cases to uh, finish the game off for you. So it's different. It's different than it was. And, you know, I've been in the game 49 years, so, you know, I've seen it all change. Uh, some of my friends that are old-timers that uh, come to games and I leave tickets for or something, and 
that will go out to dinner and they'll go, I can't believe he can't throw a complete game. I can't believe that. And I'm going like, it's almost hard for me to explain to them why that doesn't happen anymore. But uh, we have to work in the parameters that we have. Um, we protect players a lot. Um, uh, that's just the nature. I mean, these guys are very valuable, you know, to our success. And, uh, and maybe years ago, sometimes, hey, next, you know, you just went out there, they didn't worry too much about whether you got hurt or not. Uh, today, we're conscious of that. How have analytics changed the way pitchers are developed? Well, I think, you know, now that we have, you know, high-speed cameras and spin rate uh, uh, machines and, and angles, and I, I think it's a lot, of, a lot of information. I think, like, even back when we didn't have all those things, there are some players that could handle more information and other ones couldn't. It would tie them up. Um, I think as a coach, you have to recognize which guys can handle a little bit more than others. Just like with my day, there were guys that I had to be in there watching the video with them when they watched it, and there were other guys that had no problem with them watching their own video. Same thing. I can see the shifts, and I can see, you know, you know. of course, we have all the strike percentages and all these things. I mean... The hitters are way more prepared, and the pitchers are way more prepared than we ever were. They have late. I would have loved to have some of this knowledge back when I pitched because I felt like I could take advantage of it because I commanded the ball pretty good. But uh, you know, it's it's not going to go back. You know, you better learn how to handle it, but you all have to see it in perspective. You know what you know what you can use. I, I, I laughed the other day. I was listening to MLB um, radio show. And Jack McKeon came on, and I coached for Jack. I love Jack. And and they asked him about analytics, and Jack as well. You know, there's a place for it. I really see I see that there's a place for it. But he says, you know, as far as managing a team, you know, analytics can't tell you that, his, that, that your shortstop's girlfriend left him two weeks ago. And I just started laughing. I go, well, you're right. You know, it's a person-to-person communication thing and knowledge about the player that not everybody knows why he's not in the lineup. Why isn't he hitting clean up today, why is he now at the bottom of the order, the manager may know something about it that you don't, you know um, so there's a place for it for sure um, you know, I think the people that are smart know how to manage it Thanks to David Chad, Andy McKay and Mark Wiley for taking the time to join me on Executive Access, you can search for Executive Access on Apple Podcasts Art19 or wherever else you listen to podcasts, so be sure to subscribe and enjoy these conversations all season long If you like what you hear, leave us a review while you're at it. We always appreciate those. And be sure to spread the word and tell all the baseball fans in your life about executive access. Until next time, I'm Mark Feinsand. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.